One thing I just want to mention, I love how our makeup is very similar right yeah. now. So for, because no one can see us right now, we're both rocking like this bold red lips yes. and winged eyeliner. Winged eyeliner. Yeah. Very classic. I feel yeah. like this sort of shows how like being simpatico. Yeah. 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 And to me, like, I guess maybe that's one one of the many reasons I'm so grateful to see your face when we first met at the Tikola and STEM conference. Not only because you're fantastic, but it's like, hey, great, great makeup looks. <laughs> thank you. And I love your leopard print. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm a very animal print person myself, so. Yeah, I sort of realized that uh, at one point I think I thought it was tacky, then I realized that that was probably like a racialized idea, but then I realized yeah. that this is actually a more abstract polka dot. And you're wearing yeah, polka dots right exactly, now, actually. Exactly. Like, and black jeans. Yeah. So. Happy both... Valentine's Day. Right? Happy Valentine's Day to both of us. <laughs> yes. I guess so. Listeners, welcome to another episode of PhDivas. I'm PhD Diva Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities. And today, my representative from STEM is not Liz, but the amazing Dr. Faraha Asani. Thanks for talking to me today, Faraha. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, Faraha, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I am a biochemist who did my PhD in infection and immunity at the University of Sheffield. And I have been based at Leicester or in Leicester for the past two years at the University of Leicester. And um, I am currently a migrant precariat, which means that I am in a tug of war with the home office. I'm also a teacher, a mentor, a mental health advocate and a writer. I love red lipstick, I love animal prints, um, I love chocolate, and I love going to the movies by myself. So I think that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> so that's also like a good dating profile as well as a personality I, profile? I yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. So I met Faraha not just because she had great makeup and we're at this picker event, because she was also offering me solidarity after I had uh, something absurd happen to me after my first keynote, and so I... Thank you so much for that as well. Because You're most it was, welcome. It was a very shocking and isolating moment because I thought it was a space that was like safer yeah. and that was yeah. very bizarre. Basically, but I was doing my first keynote for this decolonizing STEM stuff, and then my first question was from uh, being out outwoke, as it were, by a white person. So that was a very bizarre experience for me. Yeah, and I feel like I've been noticing similar things happening in the UK in a way that I hadn't really noticed in the US and Canada until I came here, but. Um, that's sort of another topic entirely. But I got to see a, hear a little bit about Faraha's work because she's talking about what does it mean to decolonize STEM education. And so on our podcast, of course, with Liz, we were just talking so so much about how to be critical and thinking interdisciplinarity. And, and you are offering us an actual way of thinking about that in a yes. substantive manner. And so I'd love to, for you to share that and tell me more about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that... The way that we can actualize this in the science classroom and in the lab is to introduce a new course or perhaps we can say a set of courses um, that kind of introduce some of the social sciences or social studies to, to STEM subjects. Because if you look at, if I just take biochemistry, which is what I studied, um, and look at what it takes to get a biochem degree around the world, you'll see that they're all of these hardcore science subjects, um, biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, um, biochem, you know, ecotoxicology and the rest of them. And that is fantastic. Um, at the same time, through my own personal evolution as a scientist, I have noticed that 
if not for my PhD, I would not have really started thinking about how my science and my practice affects society and people that I interact with. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's time for us to really get young scientists thinking about this mm -hmm. um, formally through their degree programs. So I feel like the way that we can begin, our starting point should be to have a course on social responsibility in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And through this course, we could get students thinking about different case studies, not just the big time, you know, um, stories about scientific racism, medical racism, you know, that we know from history, but contemporary and perhaps more subtle in quotes um, cases. Mm -hmm. So I talk about, you know, the fact that it's taken so long for us to create a plaster that matches black people's skin. How many mm -hmm. of us knew that plasters were meant to match white people's skin? I didn't even think about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so why did it take so long? How come no one thought about that? Exactly. Um, and I mean, again, if you look at Castor Semenya and everything that she's been through, how many scientists have the range to 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 hold a discussion about misogynoir mm. and identify that what that's what Castor is going through or is being put through? Um, instead, it's cloaked as sports science, you know, mm -hmm. um, talking about anti-vaccine rhetoric and, and realizing that a lot of people of color have a justified reason to doubt, in quotes, Western healthcare interventions because of historical medical racism. Mm -hmm. Again, how many scientists would, would um, think about that, you know? Um, so I feel that whole, having a course that looks at these case studies and teaches scientists to be reflective and to be critical about our practice um, could perhaps be a good starting point. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not saying that I have all the answers about how to decolonize STEM, but I feel that rather than pontificating and mourning, you know, and we just need to do this right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have a course that I've designed and I also want to test its uh, effectiveness and I'm hoping that someone picks it up at some point so that we can get this going. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that I've been at so many events now where people keep on asking like, oh, so now we've learned this thing, but how do we integrate it into our degree? And people yeah. like Faraha, but particularly Faraha, are, have, have made the outlines for these courses that you put it yeah. together. Like someone, you, rather than just complaining that these things are not out there, it is out there and you have to hire these people and let them do yeah. this work. And that... Like, it's sort of like this false claim that I think that sometimes happens. And we could see this perhaps with jobs and thinking about representation generally. It's like, oh, well, are these people out there? Like, oh, we'd like to change, but this, the person or the method or something is not out there. Mm -hmm. And often it's not the case that it's not there. It's just that you're not looking hard enough. Or you're not even paying attention to yeah. that there are people there. Yeah. Um, not to say that is there couldn't be more, but sometimes like it's this sort of like disavowal of or deferral of responsibility mm -hmm. for addressing a question that sort of points to a lack which is not actually there I think exactly and what I find to be very interesting is that um, my proposal everyone that I've sent it to or I will say in the last month I've gotten more interest in it but last year everyone that I sent it to didn't pay it any mind mm. so you have everybody claiming or not everybody but loads of people claiming that they want to make a difference but why aren't you paying more attention to this course? Mm -hmm. And please, I'm not trying to pedestal myself and say, you know, I have the solution. But at the same time, this also shows me that it's it's a lot of window dressing right now that's going on. And I see this a lot with scientists. We always want to believe that we are at the forefront of change and innovation. Mm -hmm. But 
if we can't even, you know, consider changing the, the format of our degree programs to make more responsible scientists, and if we want to stick to them because, you know, stick to these programs because that's the way it's always been done, mm-hmm. can we really claim that we're change makers? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and especially, like, the recourse to it always been done that way. It just seems... Is lazy, yes, right? Yes, very, very, very lazy. And, and very question, questionable methodology, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that really struck me from your presentation was, in terms of designing this class, was the, the revision of thinking about the scientific method mm-hmm. uh, as a whole. Would you like to talk about your yes, idea Yes, so, um, and I keep saying, you know, if there's a social scientist out there that has described what I'm saying, please feel free to hit me up, because mm-hmm. I have a feeling that this is definitely not an original thought. Um, but we have this method of inquiry, a f- framework of inquiry rather called the scientific method that um, you can think of it as a cycle that begins with an observation, um, making observations that lead to the formation of a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis, um, evaluating, analyzing and forming some kind of conclusion that will then inform your future observations. And what I'm hypothesizing is that scientists have gotten so comfortable with with being the observers that it becomes very easy for us to other people. So I I always use the analogy of saying standing behind a glass. Mm -hmm. If you think of an interrogation room and we scientists feel that we are the ones that have the right to stand behind that glass Mm -hmm. and view the world and view life and view microorganisms in our petri dishes. So we get very, very comfortable in those positions and... Um, enable or deputize ourselves to be the gatekeepers of the knowledge of life, literally mm-hmm. life, um, in the sense of, um, I know what's going on in your body. I know how to keep you alive. Therefore, let me do what I want with your body to keep you and everybody else alive. And, um, you know, it sounds ominous, but if you look at history, it it, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is reason for me to to draw these conclusions, So this is what I feel has been going on. And um, these are the messages I believe that are passed down to to us. I mean, if you if you look at the attitudes, you know, held by many scientists, um, you know, I'm doing science and, um, you know, people doing humanities and people doing social sciences. And even within the sciences, um, within teaching hospitals, you'll see that clinical researchers are usually put on the pedestal versus the rest of us who are fundamental scientists Mm. so there's always going to be a hierarchy within a hierarchy it's a pecking order um and it's just about who is the greatest observer and Mm -hmm. who is who who is the greatest gatekeeper so we we are very comfortable with that and i think that links to us not necessarily wanting um to to change Mm -hmm. because that means giving up some of the power that we have Mm -hmm. and that means accepting to be held accountable and Again, as change maker as we claim to be and as innovative as we claim to be, I don't think a whole lot of us are really ready to consider and to reflect on this and to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, so till, we, till we're able to accept to be held accountable, I don't know that we're going to see a lot of change. Yeah. Part of that accountability is saying, you know what, yes, we need to do better and we need to just stop having only these committees and workshops and meetings to discuss how we can be better, but to actually now start enacting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so as someone who works on history of science, like there, there has been like work thinking about like the historical construction of objectivity and thinking like there's 
great work for our listeners from um, Lorraine Dastin and Paul Gallison, like obje- objectivity and a lot of techniques of the observer and things like that. But I guess like there's the problem is like when we do this sort of work in the humanities or history of science and science technology studies, we, we're often just preaching to the crowd. Like mm-hmm. like the, the change has to come from within, from, from people like you. And I think from the humanities side, not simply like diagnosing or describing what is happening, but then I think that is obviously it's not our place also to then make it actionable, but then we have to hand off this to make it to make it actionable to give like the literature background the history background mm-hmm. and then to people who are within stem who could sort of make that change and i feel like that's sort of an interdisciplinary link that it really that is, is often missing yeah yeah it is um so i am very aware of the fact that this proposal that i have i cannot carry it out on my own so my plan is that um i would like someone you know like you even mm-hmm. to be my mentor because i know that um I'm only catching up on certain things. I mean, even engaging with critical race theory, Mm. I'm a beginner. So again, wouldn't that still be arrogant for me to say, you know, I can do this on my own. Mm, I I, I, I can't, I really cannot. Um, It's not just about having, you know, brain power in terms of having many people on this team to, Mm -hmm. to do this, to do this work. But it's also about, again, the accountability of it for someone to say, okay, actually, Faraha, I think this is not going to work this way. And perhaps we need to consider doing this or, um, you know, doing that. So definitely, I think the interdisciplinarity of it or the transdisciplinarity Mm -hmm. of it um, as a new field, um, looking at science or I I call it science pedagogy. Mm -hmm. um, And that's where I see myself hopefully transitioning into. Yeah. from just being a lab-based scientist because I'm over that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, what I really like about how you talk about the scientific method is I think that the, the critique that sometimes happens is like when any sort of socially responsible pedagogy enters a science degree, yes. it's usually seen as like optional or supplementary. Yes. But what you're truly trying to emphasize is that it is integral to the scientific yes. method. If you truly take the principles of the scientific method seriously, it yes. means integrating it as part of the methodology. And so yeah. I think that's what's particularly important. It's not simply like you do your methodology and then you find some historical thing. Actually, this is should be part of the methodology. There's yes. all these ways to see that it's actually should be part of the imperatives of what's already in place, but people have not been able to see that. Yes, exactly. Um, so I, for testing out the effectiveness of the course, it would probably take a couple of years and to be able to come up with some kind of um, policy guideline. Um, at the same time, long term, I do see these kind of courses being integral to the science degree because mm-hmm. It's no, it, it has never been enough just to open up a handbook and see, you know, one par- paragraph talking about research ethics and integrity. We need courses like this. And perhaps even, you know, if you look at a course like biochemistry itself to introduce aspects of research and integrity within um, the biochemistry module itself mm-hmm. and have that incorporated into other modules as well that could be another approach to take Mm. um however for now i'm thinking more about a module on science you know socially responsible science and when we know that it's effective hopefully Mm. um then you know we push for having it integrated into into degree programs yeah i can see that because like you sort of want to be able to track it and show us efficacy and then be like okay measure exactly yeah i have to be able to measure it and then you could be integrative after that um and then make sure that it's like becomes more dispersed like you have to be very tactical exactly because you know the truth is uh, scientists want to see data Mm -hmm. they want to see um unfortunately (laughs) quantitative data Mm -hmm. um anecdotes don't seem to be enough Mm -hmm. 
which it's a whole nother story, but we can talk about why when certain people say, you know, um, they're going through certain things, mm-hmm. they, they're not paying attention to in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just saying that, unfortunately, these are the kind of attitudes that I have been encountering and I expect will not stop. Mm-hmm. So if I can come with, you know, the empirical reports to mm-hmm. say, hey, this is the course. We've run this for a number of years um, and it seems to be effective. Um, what are we going to do about it and, and, and how can we do it? And I think this is going to be something that will require um, teamwork with some of the funding bodies. And again, mm-hmm. like I said, I can't do this individually yeah. with just a mentor, with a supervisor. I'm going to need people that have power and influence within the UK Academy mm-hmm. um, to back me up mm-hmm. with this. Um yeah, so cross fingers for me. Yeah, I, I'm crossing all the fingers and I'll try to help however however I can. And Thank you. Like, have, like please just let me know. And I think like part of what you're sort of up against um, is I don't know if our listeners are probably familiar with um, Chanda to Weinstein's work uh, yeah. because we've interviewed her in the past and she's doing such fantastic stuff. But she had an article come out um, last the end of last year about Ooh, white empiricism. Yeah, um, and so. I think that we're, what we're trying to think about is not just like making making things more inclusive, but like thinking about the frames of knowledge and what sort of knowledge gets counted as valid. And I yeah. think this is part of what what you're up against and yes. part of the challenge. So also because again, your intervention to the scientific method has to do with with sort of seeing it being integrated as a part of of systems as opposed to abstracting it. What I think is also, you mentioned that you're um, a part of the migrant precariat, mm. and I see how this extends to the way that your thinking has become expansive and seeing yourself mm-hmm. not being exceptional as a scientist, yeah. academic who's been put in this position, but putting in the entire system of, of questioning the, the larger structures at play. Yes. Would you like to speak a little bit about that? Yes. So first of all, I just want to say, and I'm going to try and divide this into two different topics. Within science, as a scientist, I always tell my students this is, I am actually a very average scientist. Um, Average does not mean that you are incompetent. I'm an average competent scientist. Um, I have been able to identify certain things that I feel I am fantastic at. I think I'm a great educator. Um, that being said, that it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue science if you are if you feel that you're not, you know, the, the most brilliant person. As long as you're competent and you're willing to do the work, you can go ahead and do it. Um, so just as you know the teacher and me felt I should drop that there. But <laughs> now moving to the um precarity, immigration precarity, um so I'm currently still in my tug of war with the Home Office awaiting a visa. Um, I currently am, you know, I hate this term, but I'm considered legal. Mm-hmm. So I am not considered to be an overstayer and I'm no longer um, under the threat of deportation. It's really, really painful because to refer to a human being as legal mm-hmm. is, um, I, it's ungodly. In all yeah. honesty, that's that's the only way that I can describe it. It's ungodly. Um, now, I was threatened with deportation. It rocked my world. I lost my job. Um, and, you know, I decided that if everything was being taken away from me, that I would use my voice. Um, they, c- they couldn't take my voice from me. And so I started talking about my situation, um, made a video about it, was approached um, by The Guardian to, to be featured, was interviewed. 
um, didn't see the feature before it was published, mm. I should say. Although as a writer, I should have known better. I should have asked to see it. Mm. Um, the feature came out. Two things happened. Myself and loads of people were not happy at all with the way the DRC was p- portrayed mm-hmm. in that feature. And I took responsibility for that because, you yeah. know, whatever you put your name to, you endorse. That yeah. is the truth. Sorry, can you so, just maybe explain what, what do you mean um, for, for the listeners? Because it had to do this bizarre confusion, it seems like, of different African countries. Yes. So, a bit more. So our <laughs> listeners are probably familiar with, like, the migrant crises um, across uh, different countries. But you may have seen, like, that in the UK... Like, there's been so much talk of it because there's been a very anti- hostile anti-immigration um, environment or the hostile environment, as yes. they're called in the UK. And things with, with Brexit has exacerbated it. So it's but like so many different migrants have been getting their visas rejected and it's also been affecting academics. Yes. Um, so a little bit of background in case our listeners are more familiar, say, about the American context, which also takes a lot of attention. Yes. Uh, but then so specifically about how did... So, um... The second thing that that Guardian feature did then was to raise the profile of my case. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things happened at the same time. A a number of people, you know, Twitter went crazy the day that the feature dropped. Mm. Um, Or people that that read the feature, you know, there was, as you would expect, there was a lot of um, go home, Mm. (laughs) you know, comments of go home. Um, There was, Mm. again, some critique about the way the feature was formatted the, the anti-colonialist narrative of the DRC, um, I didn't see anybody coming for me, you know. no. All the critique that I received was, mm-hmm. in all honesty, I had to sit down and read it and I judged it to be very fair. There was nothing that was said that if the tables were turned, I probably wouldn't have said myself. So none of that, I, I fully accept mm-hmm. all of that critique. There was, you know, a lot of supportive comments as well. Um, people worried about me, people who, who know me. Um, and um, and so could you perhaps explain that the anti-colonial comments about the, the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes, yeah. yes. So what I have been trying to do from, from when my um, case came out is to say that, okay, first of all, I should say I my father was from the DRC. I've never been there. I was born and raised in Nigeria. Now, because of the way the Nigerian immigration system works, um, we do not have the concept of a permanent residence. So if you do not have a Nigerian passport, like I, I don't, mm-hmm. um, you have to renew your visa yearly or your uh, so-called temporary residence permit yearly. And so for me to go home, then I need to apply for a visa. Mm -hmm. And my UK visa was expiring sometime at the beginning of 2019. I applied for a visa to go back to Nigeria. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was queried, which literally means the embassy came back to me and said, well, we need this, so we need that. Um, And I received two queries. The first was, you don't have enough money in your account. And I thought, what? Where is this coming from? You know, I've never, I've applied for Nigerian visas from the UK twice. Through post, within a week, I've gotten them. Mm -hmm. Never had any issues. So I thought, what is going on? Um, Literally had friends transfer money into my account, printed out a new bank um, statement, Mm -hmm. sent it to the embassy. Within hours, got a second query saying, um, your UK visa is less than six months valid. And to give you a um, visa, Nigerian visa, we need it to be more than six months valid. So what mm-hmm. does that mean? Obviously, they were going to deny my visa, right? Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, no Nigerian visa. 
no UK visa expiring soon and me never having been to the DRC I am in a tight spot so I applied for what's called known as a compassionate visa UK mm-hmm. visa which is a leave to remain outside the rules explain my situation said listen I'm in a really tight spot I don't know anyone in the DRC I've never been there mm-hmm. um you know my my entire family history is so kind of all over the place mm-hmm. um can can you give me this visa and I should say this leave to remain so we, let's call it LOTR mm-hmm. this LOTR visa um was for two and a half years so it wasn't going to be a forever thing I wasn't saying you know put me up forever and ever UK <laughs> I was saying you know just bail me out and um then I waited for a number of months that was February so a year ago mm-hmm. the listeners I've not had my passport in my hand for a year um a year ago I applied for that visa and August the response came saying um you should have no problem going back to the DRC because you were born and raised there. Now, this is the thing I've never really said out loud because I felt I don't want to antagonize them. And, and some comments I've seen online have always said, Oh, she's keeping some things back. And I, it always, I always felt like screaming and saying, you know, I'm not being deceptive here. I'm literally trying to like duck. I'm trying to, to, I'm not trying to antagonize the home office, but it said, you know, you've been to the DRC and you were born and raised in the DRC. You should have no problem going back. So you don't have the right of an appeal. And that was on page one. And on, on page four, I think it was, it said, OK, we know you've never been to the DRC, but you were born and raised in Nigeria. So you can take all of the skills, cult, knowledge of the culture and language that you know from Nigeria and use that to survive in the DRC. And the last page said you have the right of an appeal. That's that is the truth. This is the first time I'm actually saying it out that Mm. this was the mess. So when I said they made a mess of everything they did, every legal team I've worked with said, you know, I should have been given that compassionate visa. Again, note that it's very it's very important to note the specific visa I was applying for. Mm -hmm. It was literally the visa saying, I beg you, sort me out because this is the situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was my situation. And when, 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 when I received the denial, I was also then told that I had 14 days to leave or they would deport me. Um, if I had to access um, NHS, I would have to pay. Um, and then, you know, I lost my job as a result. And for the past seven months, then had been unemployed and been fighting them. Once the prof- Once the case became high profile, then... Um, they reached out to me behind the scenes. So now I'm saying this out again because I know it's going to take a couple of months for this to go. Yeah, so currently they have said that I'm allowed to work as of December okay. and I am, my, my visa is being reconsidered. So they basically expunged their decision. Okay. And this is why I said, you know, I hate this term. However, I'm just using it to, to make a point to say that now I'm back to that legal status. And if I could send that status to hell, I really, really would because Mm. so many people that are seeking um, asylum um, are, have been destabilized because of Western geopolitics. Mm -hmm. Now you want to turn around and say, go back home when the powers that be within your own country have had a hand in destabilizing their countries. Mm -hmm. So many people that flee because of, um, homophobic laws where did that homophobia come from Mm -hmm. missions Mm -hmm. missions you know um so 
you've gone around the world basically and i say this as a christian but you've gone around the world sowing seeds of homophobia that have come back to bite you in the ass mm-hmm. but you want to tell asylum seekers refugees homosexual and gay lgbtq refugees you want to say go back home to the country that your ancestors mm-hmm. you know this is historical fact this yes. is not me being an agitator yeah um what else can i say that the i think you know so 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 that's my story basically and and just to say that this privilege of being given this guardian feature and recognizing that then it's very easy for pe- people to say oh dr asani is being oppressed mm. and knowing even personally from friends of mine who uh, uh, my friend's mom um was caught up with the home office for 10 years and had a stroke Ten years, God. Ten years. There are people who have been caught up. I can't remember how long, but I saw some um, someone on uh, tweeted saying he thinks his uh, client has the record for not seeing his passport for the longest time so far in the UK. Mm-hmm. There are people that are caught up in this system, but academics are pedestaled because mm-hmm. we, in quotes, add value. And you know what I've started noticing, Zion, is add value, that phrase people take it to mean of value. So what we're saying is, you know, these are the people that are coming and paying taxes and it's, yeah, I'm happy to pay taxes and everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm sowing something into the academic um, community. I'm happy that I'm doing what I can for the, you know, non-academics as well. And, and, and whatever help that I can give at the same time, I'm not more valuable you know, that someone who isn't an academic, than someone who's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't deserve to be treated more equitab- equitably than anyone else who's in this situation. So this is what I'm trying to do now. Use this platform to say um, I'm no better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And before you judge me more worthy, you need to start thinking about what everybody else is going through and how your history has directly led to a lot of people running over here literally running over here you know mm-hmm. for for safety mm-hmm. like again i really have to applaud that i think it can be very easy for those of us in the academy um to always just sort of lean on the cv as somehow of indicative course. of the self, self-worth yeah um and that it's not just about the individual case but about the entire system and yeah. if one leads to like on the one leads too hard on like the cv or like i'm a scientist or i'm an academic look yeah. at where am I? I have a fancy phd like yes that's true for you but then in a way does it does it make it even worse for everyone else whose situation cannot match that profile yes it does yes and i think it's very easy to take advantage of that um and it's very easy to make a case for yourself yeah i'm not like say, those bad me. i'm not like those ones yeah. you know i'm the good immigrant as nikesh shukla yeah it all you know have have shown us mm-hmm. through their books um, and I think as much as possible, we really need to be thoughtful about what we're saying and we need to, we need to desist. We need to resist the temptation to give into that because guess what? When we're all sorted at the end of the day, we all have to live with, you mm-hmm. know, what we've said and what we've done. So again, back to accountability. Mm-hmm. This is why when I was called out for that guardian mm-hmm. feature, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to run away from this. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand up here and tell you that I love people, that I love black people and, not be held accountable and not take responsibility for my own carelessness. Mm-hmm. So um, let's hope that, you know, I, I keep tapping into strength 
from 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 God, from my ancestors, from my family, my friends and my mm-hmm. beloved ones to keep doing what I need to do mm-hmm. in this fight. Thank you so much, Dr. Asani. Listeners, like I will share all the links to uh, Dr. Asani's work because she's been writing such fantastic uh, stuff thinking about science responsibly. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I fingers crossed for good for good outcomes and I know that she's speaking <laughs> at great migrant rights co- uh, conferences. Um, Thanks for listening so much and please um, take care of yourselves and take care of others and think about how your care relates to the care of others. Thank Thank you. you.